Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Last time we looked at the church becoming a temple of God, which is the, the focal point. That's what Paul's been driving to since we got into chapter 11 is this, this uh, climactic uh, revelation that the body of Christ is not only distinctive in that it is uh, the, based on a, a joining together of Jew and Gentile, but that the purpose of this joining together is to build one new man, one new body, which is now identified as we come to the uh, end of this section as the household of God, as we studied last time in verse 19, which is then described with the metaphor of a building, and that this building is a holy temple uh, for the Lord. And it is not talking about us individually here. That's one of the things we will get to when we end, is when you examine the passages in Scripture that talk about uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that he makes the body a dwelling place for God the Father and God the Son and himself. He sanctifies us so that we can be a temple. It is both as individuals but it is corporately as the body of Christ, and this is the central passage for that in this in this section. So as we review just briefly what where we have gone before, uh, we go back to Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, where the focus is on the fact that we have been brought together, Jew and Gentile. The Gentile in the Old Testament... Uh, had two different positions before God historically. The first was in the dispensation of, or the age of the Gentiles rather, and where there's only Gentiles on the earth. And then in uh, Genesis chapter 12, God calls out Abram, and he is going to create a new people for himself through Abram and Sarah and through the line of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and that is the Jewish line, and God is going to bless them in special ways and give them special privileges, and the Gentiles, all the other people on the earth, are just excluded excluded from that. And unfortunately, this led to a lot of arrogance and and pride on the part of some Jews, and they looked with disdain upon uh, the Gentiles. And there's this separation due to God's covenant with Abraham. But the contrast in verse 13 is that now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, the Gentiles, are now brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the death of Christ. One of the things that is accomplished is Jew and Gentile are brought together. And he goes on to set, describe this in verses 14 through 16, that he is our peace. He is the one who makes both one. And he's broken down a middle wall of separation, which we saw is not a wall of separation between us and God, but here it is a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, and that that wall is really a, a metaphorical uh, description of the impact of the Mosaic law, which set Israel apart to be a kingdom of, of priests. But at the cross, Christ abolishes the law. This is the strongest and clearest passage that the law has ended, uh, that the law of commandments has been abolished in his flesh so that he can create, look at the language, in himself, we keep coming back to who we are in Christ, one new man from the two. So that's what's happening here. We now have one new man so that he might reconcile them both, that is Jew and Gentile, in one body through the cross. First it's through the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, then the cross, which also stands for the death of Christ, for that which was accomplished on the cross. And he puts to death that enmity which is the law. And then he came and preached. This refers historically to Christ proclaiming peace to those who were far off during his incarnation. He went to the Syrophoenician woman, he, uh, the centurion, other Gentiles. He is proclaiming peace, one form of peace to those who are far off and those who are near. That's not the same peace as what we have now. And in verse 18, Paul says it's through him we both now have access by one spirit 
to uh, to the Father. So this just describes gives the chart that we're familiar with in the age of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the only ones. And what I'll remind you of here, while we have this uh, chart up on the screen, is that in Eden, where is God? He dwells in Eden. He comes and he spends time. So Eden is a temple, a present, a place for the dwelling of God. When Adam and Eve sin, they are kicked out of the garden. But nowhere does it tell us that God leaves. In fact, most people are under the impression that God went back to heaven and just sort of let everything go to hell in a handbasket because by Genesis 6, you've got the invasion of the fallen angels, uh, attempts to destroy the genetic purity of the human race, and God looks on the earth and says, they're just evil continually. But the standard translation there, going back to the uh, 17th century uh, King James translation is that God said, this, said, my spirit will not strive with men anymore. That word that's translated strive is only used one time in the scripture, so it's hard to define it. But when we look at related languages, cognate languages in the ancient Near East, we discovered that in all of these cognate languages, you have a word with the same root, the same consonants, but it means to abide. It doesn't mean to strive. And if you look in the margin of your Bible, you will probably see a note there that it could mean to abide. And that really opens things up because we realize God is living, continues to stay on the earth. I think that because he hasn't created government yet, he's still uh, providing a source of adjudication for crime. We see the way he handles Cain and Abel. We don't see a lot of other evidence, but there's a lot of other stuff. That's, there's a tremendous amount that's not mentioned in those first five chapters uh, of Genesis. So God continues on the earth. Then with the flood, he leaves, and then he comes back in the uh, age of Israel when the law is given, and he gives to Israel the description of the of the tabernacle that they are going to uh, make and they are going to construct. And then after they finish it and they sanctify it, God takes up his residence again on the earth in the tabernacle. It is a dwelling place for God. The tabernacle from 1445 B.C. approximately until about, about 950 is is a temporary dwelling place of God. And then Solomon constructs the first temple. And during the Old Testament period, we have the first temple and the, and the second temple. Uh, that would be uh, here during this whole period of the law. You have the first and second temple, and God is dwelling with his people. Now, that's all background. Because when we come to the New Testament, we're going to see similar language when we come to the Gospel of John, that that we're told that he that Jesus became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and the Greek word there is the word skene, which is really borrowed from the Hebrew, and the name for the for the tabernacle was Mishkan, the S H K N. Those are your three consonants that you get in skene, S-K-N, and that means a dwelling place, and that was where uh, God tabernacled. So you've heard some pastors quote that verse, is that uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But it's the word to dwell, and so you have the dwelling of Christ on the earth during his incarnation, and then he ascends to heaven, and then he sends the Holy Spirit, and the church is created on the day of Pentecost. And as we're going to see from this passage, we become the new dwelling place corporately for the presence of God on the earth. 
And this is uh, revolutionary. And then during the tribulation, there will not be a presence of God on the earth. There's no indwelling by the Holy Spirit. There's no indwelling of God the Father and God the Son in the believers during the tribulation. And then he will make his home on the earth again uh, during the millennial kingdom. So that gives us the panorama of God's presence uh, upon the earth. So just to finally bring this section to a close here, there's the law that's the barrier between Gentile and Jew. The cross wipes out that enmity, abolishes the law, and Jew and Gentile have peace and come together. The second barrier is the sin barrier between God and man, and the cross takes care of the sin barrier, and the new entity will be called the church, the body of Christ. And this is God reconciling us to himself through the cross. So that brings us back to where we are in this last uh, section, and actually this last lengthy sentence from verse 19 to 22. And so Paul begins uh, with this making this conclusion, strong conclusion, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, because earlier in verse 11 and 12 he had identified that they were strangers and foreigners. But now you're fellow citizens with the saints. First of all, those are church-age saints, not Old Testament saints, as I said last time, and also members of the household of God. I'll come back to that in a minute. Which is built are because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets that distinguish it as the church age. That's not talking about the Old Testament prophets, as I said last week, but New Testament prophets. And Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And I pointed out last time that in the Old Testament, I mean, in the ancient world, at that time that you laid a cornerstone and that became the orientation point for all of the building, all the measurements, the layout of the lines of the building, everything came off of the cornerstone. So the building itself gets its meaning, purpose, orientation, everything from the cornerstone. Christ is our cornerstone. And then this morning we're looking at these last two verses, in whom the whole building being fitted together. This is a key word to look at as we go through this. Uh, it's a compound word in the Greek, but we've seen this before, and it's important that this is talking about the togetherness that we have in Christ, Jew and Gentile brought together. And then he goes on to say that in whom the whole building, so we're talking about the corporate entity of the church, being fitted together grows. It's It's continuing. It's present tense. It's still actively... Uh, developing, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So this is talking about the body. It is talking about the household of God. Is being This whole building is the context, is the place that is being set apart as a temple. The word temple, the idea of temple is the dwelling place of a of a God. So this is the temple, the dwelling place, so it's the church as a as a whole. Now I put these verses up to remind us of how togetherness has been a major theme all through Ephesians two. In Ephesians two, one through ten, the focus is what we have together in Christ in salvation. In Ephesians two, five and six uh, when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our new identity. We are together, Jew and Gentile. We are one united body. Now, at the conclusion of this section, he's going to talk about the fact that we are being, this is active, this is in process, we are being fitted together and we are being built together for a dwelling place of God uh, by means of the Spirit. I pointed out last time that uh, Paul uses a, he doubles up his conjunctions here 
to get our attention. He's drawing a conclusion and uses two different inferential uh, conjunctions. Uh, that means that they're, they're draw- he's drawing the conclusion, the consequences of everything that he has said before, that uh, we are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow uh, citizens, and we could understand that also in the sense of emphasizing togetherness, just as several places he says we are both, and that emphasizes that uh, togetherness. So here he is simply emphasizing that we're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, and we're members of the household of God. We are. This is a term that indicates a close family connection. What's interesting is we have several words through here that are all built on the root of this word, and it has to do with household when you get to the word oikonomos, which we'll hit in chapter 3. That's house law. That was translated as administration or dispensation. That's where we get the... Uh, get our word for dispensationalism. But all of these, and we'll see it again when we look at, um, at verse 21, the whole building uh, being in whom we are being built in verse 22. All of those are all built off of the root of this word. So he's really tying this whole thing together. And as I pointed out last time, when you go back to verse uh, 13, you have the phrase, we both. That's then identified as one new man. It's then identified as one body. And now it's identified as the household of God. And all this refers to the corporate universal church, the body of Christ. So in verse 21 and 22, let me just go to this slide. It begins in whom? And of course, if you look at the context, it has just mentioned Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So the uh, word whom refers back to Jesus. In whom? We are in Christ. As we've said again and again going through Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, that is our new legal position as believers at the instant of salvation in the church age. One of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit is he unites us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so this places us in Christ in Romans 6, 3 through 6. This is where Paul lays this down and describes it as the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Baptism has the connotation of identification. So we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit places us in him. So this is part of the dynamic is we are placed in Christ by the Holy Spirit and in him the the whole building. There's something that is taking place. It's not just a matter of being statically put in Christ, but this is foundational to uh, the way in which we fit together in the body of Christ in whom and then we read the whole uh, building. And that you can recognize the O-I-K at the beginning of this word. It's based off the root for house, oikos. And here it has to do with, it's translated as the whole building as if it's a completed entity. But it is really a talking about this new organism An organism is something that's not static. It's continually growing. That's why we refer to the church as the new organism in this age. And oikotome can refer to a building, or it frequently describes the building up of something. And in that sense, it has often been translated as edification. So you lose that sense by taking the word and translating it as being edified. Being edified means to be built up. And so there are several times this word is used in Ephesians, and it always relates to the edifying of the body, the building up of the body, the constant spiritual growth and maturity. Ephesians 4.12, that the gifts of pastor-teacher and evangelists are given for the equipping of the saints 
for the work of ministry, for the edifying or for the building up of the body of Christ. So this is talking about that spiritual growth and maturation for each believer. Ephesians 4.16 talks about the edifying of itself in love, the building up of itself in love. And Ephesians 4.29, what is good for necessary building up. So all of the other uses in Ephesians talk about something being built built up, the whole building or the whole building up, the, and it, it, so it's a dynamic thing that's in process. It's not completed. And then the next word is the word sun arma legeo, which is uh, the S-U-N at the beginning, something is, is being together. So it's emphasizing this together, and it's talking about being fitted together. This is a good carpentry term. In our world, when we are building with stones or bricks or anything of that nature, we smooth things out and fit things together by using mortar. And we use that that mortar or cement in order to put everything together. But that's not how they did it in the ancient world. What they did in the ancient world was they would take these these enormous blocks of stone and they would sand them and work them until they would fit perfectly one on top of the other without any gap. Those of you who have been to Israel with me before, one of the most impressive things that we do is to go down in what is called the Western Wall Tunnels. And here I have three or four pictures of this. This is this mammoth, mammoth stone. They have, uh, in fact, I was, I think we were given different numbers when I first went, but it is uh, estimated to be about 430 tons. Now, so now you're asking important questions like, well, how did they cut that? How did they move it? See, they weren't as primitive as we think 2,000 years ago. They had different technology, but they could do phenomenal things. This is this last year, of course, uh, we went to Egypt, and you go to the uh, uh, Great Pyramids of, of Giza, and you look at them, and they talk about how big some of those uh, stones are and how uh, difficult it was to move them, and they moved them a much further distance, but they were nothing compared to this. You might have uh, 20 tons there. Well, we're talking about 420 or 430 tons for this this rock, and you see that's this rock that is in the middle of the screen, and it goes all the way to approximately here. Uh, it is about as long as from here to the to the back of the room. That's a and we don't know exactly how deep it is. They can guesstimate it on the basis of other things that they've been able to do, but you can see the seams that run horizontally below it and above it. And if you go there, you will see that one of these huge rocks fits perfectly on top of the one below it. That is a visual picture. Here's another look. It has a little more light on it here. But you can, you can see up close where these rocks come together and there's, they, they fit perfectly. You, you can't slide a, the, the thinnest piece of paper can't slide between these stones at any, at any point. And here is a, another picture of the masonry there and showing how smooth it is. So they work them and that's the image that Paul is using here, that we are fitted together. I think that an implication of this is that as God is uh, working in our life, sanctifying us and maturing us, he is sanding off those rough edges and fitting us together tightly within the body of Christ. So this... um, Imagery here helps us understand how God is working to fit us together. And then we have the main verb here, uh, the whole building. I think this is more of a temporal. When, when it is being fitted together, grows into a holy temple. 
So it is a dynamic concept of continual growth. You continue to add new believers to the body of Christ, and they continue to grow and mature as they are built up in the faith. So we grow and mature, and then we read that they are growing into something. Corporately, this body that is continually growing is being built into a dwelling place for God. So it's not just the individual believer that is indwelt by God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it is also the church itself. We are being built into a holy temple. Now, we've studied the word holy many times, and it has that idea of something that is being set apart for the service of God. If you go back into the Old Testament, when we first see the word appear uh, frequently in the layout of the uh, of the uh, construction of the of the tabernacle, the vessels that are set apart for the use of God in the tabernacle are not to be used for common everyday things. They're set apart for the service of God. So you have the bowls and you have the candles and you have the various uh, uh, instruments and utensils, and they're all set apart. But these are inanimate objects. So the word holy there doesn't have moral significance because uh, so often when people think of holy, they think of somebody who is uh, morally pure, but instruments and inanimate objects can't be moral or immoral. They are inanimate objects. Uh, another way in which the word holy is used in the Old Testament is in relationship, a form of the word is used in relationship to describing the uh, temple prostitutes in the fertility cults. See, they are not morally pure, but they are set apart to the service of their God. So this tells us, first of all, we have to think of this as something that is unique, something that's distinct, and something that is set apart to the service of God. And so when we think about these verses that say that we are a temple for the Holy Spirit, it means that we're being set apart for the service of God. The word for temple here is another word that is uh, important for us to understand. It's the word naos. And as I've indicated in the meaning for the, for the word here is that it is uh, one of two words that's used to describe a temple in Greek. The word, uh, the one other word is hieros. Uh, this is a word that means, um, also means temple, but it would include the entire temple complex as opposed to an inner sanctum. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a slide. So if you were in Ephesus, you would think of the local temple. This was the Artemisium. It was the temple to Artemis of the Ephesians, which is just the Asian version of Diana the Huntress. And the Artemisium was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But it's always described as a heros. It's never described as a naos. So the naos was used for certain things that uh, related to this. For example, when we read in Acts, when Paul is in Ephesus and the silversmiths are losing their business because uh, apparently so many were becoming Christians that they weren't buying the little uh, silver shrines of the of the temple. And the word that's used to describe the silver shrine is naos, as opposed to the word that was used to describe the actual building itself, uh, which was heros. So it's important to look at these distinctions. And the naos was used of the holy of holies and the holy place for the, for the tabernacle and for the, the temple. There are, when you looked at the temple, there's the outer courtyard, which is the courtyard for the Gentiles. Then there's a second courtyard just outside of the uh, main uh, complex, all within the walls and the structure, that was called the courtyard for the women. And then there's a courtyard for the men. And then you go inside the walls of the of the uh, of the temple proper, 
not the nows yet, and this is where the uh, brazen altar and the and the laver were located. That's where the priest could go, but only the high priest would go into the holy of holies in the naos. So this is uh, the, what we're described as. This is extremely significant. We are a extremely special, distinctive, holy temple, the dwelling place for God as the body of Christ. But this word naos is also used to describe each individual believer's body as a temple. And this is not something that is just uh, can be prof- should that should be profaned. It is sacred and set apart. And that relates to our positional uh, sanctification. So we are fitted together. We are growing its dynamic into this set apart dwelling place in the Lord. And here this is comparable to the phrase we studied earlier at the beginning of the verse, in whom it relates to our position in Christ. So all of these terms uh, interconnect and interrelate. Then we come to the next verse, brings us to an even uh, more significant uh, situation. And this is... uh, in verse 22, in whom, again, we have it starting the same way that verse 21 began, in whom that is in curios, in the Lord. This is what we just saw at the end of verse 21. Uh, in whom the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, you even, and here you, it's translated you also, but I think it's more of a sensitive. On the one hand, we're being, we're, uh, We are being built together as a holy temple, but not only that, you are even, you are also, it is even more important, you are being built together for a dwelling place of God by means of the Holy Spirit. So here we come across another important word. We are being built together soon oikod. There's our root for a home, a dwelling, a building, something of that nature, Oikademeo, that we are built together, and the together describes who? Jew and Gentile. So God is breaking down all of these uh, barriers that related to ethnicity, these barriers that related to race, and we are all one in the body of Christ. We are being built together and for a dwelling place, and this is another word that has this same root. Paul uses these words. He he coins several of these. They're only found in Paul's writings. But he does this again and again to get our attention on the fact that this is a construction project. It's ongoing. God is building it. We don't build it ourselves. We can't do anything about it. It takes us back to, to Matthew where Jesus says uh, to Peter, who, who people say that I am, and people, Peter says, well, some think you're... Uh, Elijah, and think you're John the Baptist, and Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, because flesh and blood did not reveal it to you. And then he says, on this rock. He's not talking about what Peter said. He's referring to himself. He's the rock. He's the cornerstone. All through the Old Testament, God is referred to again and again and again as a rock. And Jesus says, on this rock on me, I will build my church. And one of the problems that we have today is that we have too many pastors that are trying to build a church. I just recently heard of a pastor of a uh, rather large multi-campus church here in Houston that is uh, resigning because he's just overworked and he's worn out and he's depressed. And, uh, you know, it just seems to me that when this happens, it's because you're trying to do God's work instead of what God said to do. You, God's, Christ said, I'll build a church, you feed the sheep. Somebody asked me, said, well, how many pastors do you know have run into this kind of a problem? And I said, well, I know pastors who run into other problems, but they haven't run into this problem because if the pastors I know are focused on teaching the word. And there's nothing more exciting 
in this life than to teach God's word and to to study it day in and day out and to see all the things that God can teach you. We're never we're never going to run out of time in eternity and we'll always be learning more and more about God and more more and more about his word. So this is this dynamic thing. We're being built into a dwelling place by God. These are, uh, if you look at these, the verbs all through here, they're passive voice verbs. We're being built together. We're not doing it ourselves. God is doing it. So we are being built together as a dwelling place of God. Now this has, this should be a dwelling place for God. That's the sense here. It's a genitive, and so it's translated cor- correctly, but not precisely. So it should be that we are being built together for a dwelling place for God. Now, who is this? Well, this is God the Father. One of the interesting things, and I spent about an hour and a half last night working on this, and I'm not going to be teaching it anytime soon, but trying to discern in Old Testament, various Old Testament passages, who is being talked about here. For example, we've gone through this. We've talked about Isaiah and Isaiah's vision where he is suddenly transported into the presence of God and the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he's before the Lord of hosts. Well, there are some who have said, and I may have said this at some point, that that is a title for Christ. It is clear in passages in Isaiah where you have Yahweh and his Redeemer saying something. And the Redeemer, of course, refers to the second person of the Trinity. The Redeemer is called the Lord of hosts. But if you look at this language as it's used in places like Psalm 46 and 47, it's identified with El Elyon who goes back to Genesis 14 and Melchizedek worshiped El Elyon. And so that's, uh, that's very most likely God the Father. Besides, in Psalm 47, it's connected to the God who, sovereign God who's the king of the earth in Psalm 46 and 47. And if you look carefully at Isaiah, it's identifying the Lord of hosts in places with the king of the earth, who's not the son. That's always a term for the father. This is enough to turn your brains inside out trying to figure this out. Why? Because... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. Jesus says, now I understand there's nuances of, of difference, but, but if you just look at it, just first blush, you look at it and John 1.14, no man has seen the Father at any time, or John 1.18, no man has seen the Father at any time. You go to Jesus' conversation with Philip in John 14, and Jesus says, "If you, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, wait a minute. Which is it? No man has seen the Father at any time. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, the point is Jesus is the manifestation of the Trinity. And so you, you see who God is in terms of his character by looking, looking at Jesus. But elsewhere in John 8, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So when he says, I and the Father are one, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that means that there is this this unity in the Godhead that having seen one, you've seen all three. And there are places where I believe that the Scripture is not distinguishing which member of the Trinity it is. We always want to say, is that the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? And I think sometimes it's just talking about the triune God. But sometimes it's difficult to discern this. So here it's very, it's clear, I think, within the context, uh, and some other things that are said, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God, and here it's God the Father, by means of the Spirit. So you have a trin- another reference to the Trinity here, just as we did uh, earlier, 
and in this this section dealing with the roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here you have God the Father, you have Christ, and you have the Spirit. In Ephesians four six, and remember, F said Ephesians four through chapter four through six all relate to things that are built on what's said in the first three chapters. And here in four six, we're going to see the statement: One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So here it's making it clear: God the Father dwells in. Uh, every believer. We are also we also see passages like in Colossians one twenty seven. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all take up residence inside the believer. Now, there are a lot of scholars who will say, well, it's all done by the Spirit. You don't have all three there. But we have to accept the fact that the Scriptures are are precise in the language here. You have the Father in you, Christ in you, and the Holy Spirit in you. We are a temple. And I believe when you go back to the Old Testament, it is the triune God that is in the Holy of Holies. The triune God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The triune God is the God of Israel. It is not one or the other of the manifestations of the Trinity. It is God the Father. You can't say, well, it's God the Son to the exclusion of the Father because there's too many places where it is the mighty God, who's God the Father, who is the, also called the God of Israel. But I'm not going to take you through all those passages because your eyes will glaze over after about five minutes, and and now you, you just have the flyover version there. So I want to close by just looking at a few verses that talk about uh, what the Bible teaches about the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit because it is God the Holy Spirit who is the one who makes our body a temple for the indwelling of the Trinity. So we go to the two main passages are in Corinthians, but we'll look at a few others. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we read Paul saying, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, I've always had a problem with this verse. And the problem is that if you read most systematic theologies, they will say this is talking about the same thing that Ephesians is talking about. This is talking about the body of Christ. And I had a good friend who's now with the Lord who was a pastor for many years and a theologian and wrote many articles and was a good scholar of the Word. And he and I would go round and round. I remember the first time we hit this, he said, this is the body of Christ. I said, how do you get that? And he said, well, because the yous here are plural. So he's talking about the, 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 the whole corporate church of Corinth. I was teaching Corinthians at the time. I'd gotten to about chapter 5, and I said, well, help me understand this, because you can't base that on the plural, because every single time that a second person pronoun is used in the first five chapters of Corinthians, it's a plural. And they're not all talking about the corporate body. You know, we have the singular you, meaning one person, or it could be you can use you in the singular referring to a corporate group, or you can have y'all, or you can have all y'all. And I think that communicates because if you say all y'all, you're really talking about each one of you. So if I say, y'all pray, that could be misunderstood to mean I'm talking about the whole group pray. But if I say, all y'all pray, then I'm talking about each one of all of you pray. Does that communicate? You have to be a southerner to get this. So of the many times that Y'all, you in the plural, is used in the first 
four or five chapters of Corinthians. It may go beyond that, but I have never taken the time to trace it all the way through the epistle. Paul says in verse 10, this is his first real exhortation or command to the Corinthian congregation. He says, now I plead with y'all, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that y'all, you all, y'all speak the same thing. Now, is he talking to them as a corporate entity or to each individual within the whole? He's talking to each individual within the whole. Just because he says y'all doesn't mean he's talking about the corporate body. See, that's what you'd have to have here. This has to get the idea that this is talking about the, the corporate body, the church itself is the indwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You have to take the y'all here to refer to the as a corporate sense. It never does that in the first three chapters of, of Corinthians or the fourth or the fifth, but everything up to this point, it's all about y'all in the plural, but that means each one of you. He's talking about something that all y'all need to be doing. So then you look at this context of 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. He says, do you not know that y'all, every one of you, are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you because he treats them all as being saved. He's writing to the church. They're, they're carnal, they're disobedient, they're rotten, they're divisive, they're arrogant, they've got all kinds of sin problems, but they're still saved. Verse 17, he says, If anyone defiles or that is corrupts the temple of God, God will, uses the same word again, will corrupt or corrupt him. That's talking about divine discipline. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are, y'all are. And so it's talking about each of you as an individual temple. And this becomes clear if you go to the next verse. Now, what's interesting is most theologians will say the first one's talking about the whole entity and this one's talking about the individual, but they're, they're both. I don't see an argument there at all. It doesn't wash. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And so because it uses the word body, here they're forced to say, okay, this is talking about each individual. Each individual is a temple that is set apart by the Holy Spirit. He not only indwells, but he is setting apart uh, us positionally in Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. He makes the temple for the indwelling of the Father and the Son, and it is he also who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. So this verse makes it clear that this is not corporate, it's individual, and the Holy Spirit is in you. But if this is corporate, and some people will take it that way, how would you prove that the Holy Spirit dwells in each believer. It's in Romans 8. But you are not, and here it's also plurals, but you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. See, when Paul is talking to a group, he uses plurals. But he's really talking about each one of you. But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is the clearest undebated passage, the Spirit, you're saved. If you're saved, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. This sets this church age apart from all other ages because the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit indwell every believer, and that's never happened before. Even one member of the Trinity in the Old Testament, it doesn't use this indwelling language. The Spirit comes upon, comes to, but you don't have this, this distinctive sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to Saul, to David, to prophets was always for the purpose of leadership responsibilities in the theocracy. It wasn't for their personal spiritual life. 
It had to do with giving them wisdom for leadership, skill for uh, constructing the uh, furniture in the in the tabernacle or the temple, but it wasn't for their spiritual life or for prophets. It had to do with with giving them uh, uh, revelation, communicating the revelation of God that they were carried along by the Spirit, as Peter tells us in Second Peter one twenty and twenty one. John 14, 6, Jesus predicted this. He said, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. He's the spirit who gives truth. He's the one in charge of revelation, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, future tense. So this is talking about something that is unique, distinct for the church-age believer. And is related to anointing. John uses the word anointing. Paul uses the word indwelling. Uh, that's the, it's the same thing. Often you hear these false prophets and false teachers and false whatever on TV. Oh, we need to have a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's no Bible verse that talks about that. You get one anointing when you trust Christ as Savior. You're indwelt or anointed by the Holy Spirit. The anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and it's true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught in you, you will abide in him. So this relates it to our fellowship with the Lord, and that brings us to a different different topic. But next time, we're going to come back and talk about the ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the believer at salvation and after salvation, because there's a lot of confusion about these things, and it's been a while since I've gone through those for everybody, but we'll hit those uh, next time before we move on with the understanding of this new mystery, this new revelation about the church that Paul has been given. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this morning, to reflect on your word, to be reminded of the distinctive position that we have as believers in Christ, that we are, we are in this body together, in his body. We have, that the language is, is so elevated. Uh, we are so significant in your plan. There is such a, 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 a import to this that, Father, we hardly identify with this because we are, uh, not well trained in the scriptures, that we have been given so much and that you are making us this this dwelling place as a body of believers and as individual believers, a dwelling place for the triune God, that your glory will be manifested in and through us as we walk with you. Father, we pray that if anyone is listening to this lesson and never trusted in Christ as Savior, never understood the gospel, never understood that salvation is necessary because we are born spiritually dead. But there's nothing we can do to make ourselves savable. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't be good enough. As, as we've studied in this very chapter of Ephesians 2, it's not by works. It is by faith. It is through faith in Christ, and that is not of ourselves, that salvation through faith is a gift. It's a free gift given to us, and it's on the basis of trusting in Christ as Savior. Thank you for all that you've done for us and all the blessings you've given us and challenge us as we continue to learn about them, that we might live for you, not for ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.